Bibles to Matthew chapter 24. Uh, As we continue our series in Matthew, we've entered chapter 24 and 25. These two chapters comprise one discourse, one sermon that Jesus gives. We have noted in the past that Matthew, uh, his structure in part is held together by five lengthy discourses that Jesus gives throughout. And this is the fifth and final lengthy discourse. In this particular text, both of these chapters uh, are all focused on the return or the coming of the Son of Man, uh, the end of the age. And so it is pointing us forward to what is coming. What's important about the content and structure of these two chapters is that Jesus places the greatest amount of weight not on the signs that will precede his coming, or perhaps we might say the false signs that will precede his coming, uh, but on how to prepare. So of the 97 verses that make up chapters 24 and 25, 62 of them are all about how we are to be prepared, how we are to get ready for his coming. And so the application is very clear. Are we ready? Are we prepared? Jesus provides this instruction so that his people are a readied people, a prepared people. So it's Matthew 24, beginning at verse 36. Listen now to God's word. As Jesus continues on in his discourse, he says, But concerning that day and that hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field, one will be taken and one left. Uh, Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one left. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Uh, Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed, and begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him, at an an hour he does not know, and will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Christopher Latch, uh, a cultural critic, cultural commentator, said this regarding the last century. He said, as the 20th century approaches its end, The conviction grows that many other things are ending as well. Storm warnings, various signs, we might add a pandemic, uh, hints of catastrophe, these things haunt our times. The sense of ending, 
which has given shape to so much of 20th century literature, now pervades the popular imagination as well. How does our culture view the world coming to an end? What does our society think about how things are going to end up? Perhaps for some people, they resonate with the, this idea of kind of a spiral of decay and meaninglessness that could be described uh, by T.S. Eliot in his poem, The Hollow Men. This is how he ends that poem. This is how the world ends. This is how the world ends. This is how the world ends. Not with a bang, but with a whimper. Just kind of spiraling in this sense of vanity and meaninglessness. Man is hollow and empty. Others would suggest we're maybe headed uh, toward choking ourselves out by our own pollution or some kind of catastrophic nuclear uh, exchange or explosion. Still, you have others who would look forward and project billions of years into the future until our star, the sun, burns out. At which point, some people, like scientist Alan Stern and others, suggest at that point people may be inhabiting other planets. Now, if you're like me and you think about billions of years, which I don't think a whole lot about in the course of my days, or people inhabiting other parts of the galaxy, you kind of maybe chalk this up to, to something of science fiction or the sorts. How will the world end? What about our own end? Our own life? Do you give thought to that? How, how is my own life here on this earth going to come to an end? Perhaps worst of all is when people refuse to think about the end at all, whether it's the end of their own life or the end of the world. They just ignore the whole concept. I think death as a subject may be the last taboo in American culture and society. We think of topics of sexuality, racial reconciliation, politics. These are difficult subjects, but people will still discuss them or at least debate about them. But you talk about dying, you talk about the end of life, and you may just get silence in that conversation. Our Lord Jesus is not silent at all about the nature of life, where history is headed, where the world is going. He's not silent at all about end of life, end of world matters. And, and perhaps in this text, a launching point here is the transition Jesus provides, if you look back at verse 33, which was from last week, and then verse 36. Because he says there's something that you know, and there's something no one knows. There's something you know, and there's something no one knows. Look at verse 33. He says there, when you see all these things, if you recall, and you were here last week, he began listing these signs or false signs, earthquakes, false Christs coming, Wars and rumors of wars. Then you know he is near, he says. So there's something you know. He is near. And then in verse 36, he says, concerning that day and hour, no one knows. You know that he is coming. You know the end is going to arrive, but no one knows when. Which is why there's an emphasis two times, verse 42 and 44 where Jesus says, stay awake. 
And then in 44, be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. There is that temptation to think, I have more time. I don't need to occupy my mind with these things. We might quote Ecclesiastes, there's nothing new under the sun. Or misquote that. Besides, there's going to be clear signs, right? Clear signs for the end of my life, clear signs for the end of our Lord's coming. What do I need to get ready for? Uh, David Garland, Christian author, he says, Jesus does say certain things must happen. Uh, We considered it in, in Matthew. Elijah must come first. Garland says he has come. Oh, the Son of Man must suffer and be raised. He has. Uh, the temple must be destroyed. It has. Uh, the disciples will face persecution. They have. The gospel must be preached to the nations. He says, it is being preached to the nations. There's something striking in, in Jesus' words here about the nature of the end the nature of the world and the time when he, when he comes, when he returns. Look at verse 37. As were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days, before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Now what do you think What do you think about when you think of the days of Noah? Weren't those days characterized by wickedness, widespread debauchery, idolatry, rebellion against God? That's what oftentimes we think about, and then we might say, as it was in those days, so it is today. Well, that may be true, but that's not the point of the text. That may be very true in how we characterize and how the scriptures characterize that time, but that's not the point emphasized by the text here. The point here is that by many respects, life was normal. People were planning weddings and getting married. People were gathering with family and friends for meals. People were out working in the fields. Children, boys and girls were playing games. Jesus is simply saying that just as in the days of Noah, people were living their normal lives, going about their normal business, so it is at the coming of the Son of Man. Those people had no category to understand or believe that it could be possible for such an end and such a destruction to come. Of course, there was that man down the way the preacher named Noah, who for years had been in an effort building a boat, a silly boat. But who's going to really pay attention to the preacher and the work that he was doing? But it was happening. And then the flood, and then the judgment came, and they were unprepared. And that's something Jesus wants to communicate, not only in this text, but we'll see through Matthew 25. There's a suddenness, and at that point, it's too late to prepare. You can't prepare at that point. It's too late. Normal, everyday life is dangerous. It's good. Uh, Even in the days of Noah, the Noahic covenant, we think, of the rainbow, the promise of a preserved earth, 
I won't destroy the earth by a flood. There's a predictability, a preservation that we can count on. That's good. But normal life can deceive a person into thinking a false sense of stability or security. As if normalcy means permanency. But it does not. And yet Jesus not only says an end is coming, but we see the nature of that end. It is a judgment. A judgment is coming. Uh, Frederick Dale Bruner, he says, It is right not to know when, as Jesus tells us, but it can be damnable not to know that a day of judgment is coming. He says, The judgment of God is the great neglected truth and future event and the second most important teaching of our Lord. Jesus is telling us what is coming, and he gives us some pictures, vignettes, to capture it. So look at these pictures he gives. Verse 40, he says, Two men will be in the field. One will be taken. One will be left. In the ancient world, we're probably uh, thinking about two uh, brothers working together or a father and a son working together out in the field. Some believe that the one who is taken is taken by the returning Christ to be with the Lord, as Paul says in Thessalonians. The dead in Christ will rise first and then those living will be caught up to be together with the Lord upon the Lord's descent and the creation of the new heavens and the new earth. We meet the Lord in the air. That's what some people believe. Others believe that this being taken is a taken in judgment. As in the case of the flood in the preceding verses, the flood comes and wipes away and takes away the reprobate, those fallen, those who do not know the Lord. I lean toward the latter. The judgment, like the flood, is going to take them. But for the purpose of the text, it really doesn't too much matter. Because the point is that the brothers are separated, or the father and the son are separated. One is ready, and one is not. And then he has a second picture in verse 41. Two women, they'll be grinding at the mill. One will be taken, one left. Certainly part of what Jesus is communicating here, as I mentioned, is the suddenness of it. The sudden nature of the end. But also, the people appear to be so similar. On the outside, two men, both presumably healthy, they're doing the same work. Two women, cooperative, working together under the same sun, breathing the same air. One is ready, one is not. And then you have a third picture that Jesus gives in verse 43. He says, If the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Have you ever been the, uh, the victim of theft? Have you ever been robbed? Uh, your car broken into? Your house broken into? About eight, about eight years ago, while I was in the midst of uh, conducting a graveside service, just across the road, a stone throws away from our house. During that service, a man or woman walked up to our house, presumably knocked on the door. No one came. We had left the door unlocked because we were right across the road. 
They went in, went upstairs, right into our bedroom, took a pillowcase off one of our pillows, stuffed it with all of my wife's jewelry, and left. And I remember the feeling I had of coming into our house and then realizing, once I entered our bedroom, someone's been here. Someone has broken in to our house or walked into our house. And that sense of intrusion into your domain, into your place. I remember not being able to to sleep very well for several nights, concerned about sounds that I'm hearing. Jesus' point here is not so much, don't be surprised. Rather, when you're surprised, when the hour comes, that we're ready for it. And so two times he tells us what we are to do. Not only that he's coming, but that we're to be prepared. Uh, Verse 42, therefore stay awake. You do not know on what day the Son of Man is coming. Stay awake. Verse 44, you must be ready. Be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. There's a lot of things that we prepare for throughout the course of of our lives. Students prepare for tests, a math test, a science test. I know if you're a student right now, it's not something you want to hear. It's in the middle of the summer. But we prepare for tests. People prepare for getting a driver's license. People prepare for marriage. People prepare for a career or for retirement. Christians are called to be different. We are preparing certainly for those kinds of things. But we are preparing for this last great event that is coming. Both at the end of our lives, as uh, Hebrews 9 says, for man is destined to die once and after that to face judgment, but, but also that great judgment day in the end. We're preparing for that. God has called us to be a people ready together uh, for what is, what is coming. Think about the various ways that nations and peoples were unprepared for the effects of the coronavirus. I remember just a couple of weeks in, end of March, beginning of April in our country, a headline in the Wall Street Journal. Relax, America. The U.S. has plenty of toilet paper. You remember? Distribution problems, production problems. All of a sudden, the shelves were empty. People could not get tissue paper. So if we think COVID-19 has had a great effect, if we, if we think people were unprepared for that, think of the last day. Think of the last day. What will people possibly do to be prepared? To meet the creator of, of all things. What, what will they do? So Jesus says to us, graciously, stay awake, be watching. The commands communicate something ongoing. Be ever ready. Be always watching. So it's a life orientation. What does it mean to be ready? What does it mean to be watchful? If if you are a believer in Jesus Christ and you have trusted in him and you know the gospel, you know that your ultimate security is, It is not in the work of your hands. It's not in your own strength or abilities. But in the finished work of Jesus Christ, his death for our sins, what we celebrate in the Lord's Supper, 
Him reconciling us to God. His work of, of uniting us to Himself. That's why we sing, My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. Security, hope, assurance from the flood is much about building a life in the Lord, a life he has given to us, and a life that he continues to sanctify. It's about finding refuge in him. And yet, what does this refuge, what does this security look like? I think Jesus is teaching us about the faithful life. This is what he speaks about in verse 45. Who's the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give him their food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Certainly this is not a works kind of righteousness, but but a faithfulness that demonstrates one who has responded to the good news is seeking the Lord and finding his rest, security in him. I think a life secure in him looks a bit like Noah. Like some gopher wood, pitch, and a calling to build an ark. We might say it looks like a hammer, nails, and wood. Jesus references Noah and the flood. What did the Lord say to Noah in Genesis chapter 6? Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark. Cover it inside and out with pitch. For behold, I will bring flood, a flood of waters upon the earth. And then it says this. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. Noah was sinful. But he did what God commanded him. His life was represented by one of of faithfulness, sincerity, a true response to the word spoken to him. He believed the word of the Lord and he responded to it. The faithful and wise servant is the one who by the grace of God builds a life, finds a life in him who is seeking refuge in the ark of God. And that ark is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. February 17th, 1856, the great preacher Charles Spurgeon, he preached a sermon on Genesis 7, verse 15, which says, They went into the ark with Noah, two and two of all flesh, in which there is the breath of life. He said, The ark, Spurgeon, the ark of gopher wood in the one case... And the person of Christ in the other case sets forth the one only means that was ever planned or provided by God. The whole world was drowned except those happy ones who were found in the ark. There were not two arks, but one ark. So there are not two saviors, there is one savior. There was no other means of salvation except the ark. So there is no plan of deliverance except by Jesus Christ, the Savior of sinners. Spurgeon says, In vain do people climb to the highest pinnacles of their self-conceit and worldly merit. You shall be drowned, drowned beyond the hope of salvation. For there is no other foundation that can be laid than that which has been laid, which is Jesus Christ. Who in this congregation shall be saved? He says. They must all be saved by one way. There's but one way, 
Enter into the ark. Take refuge in Christ, for only thus can you be saved. Noah responded to the word. He heard the word, God's command. He believed it. He oriented his life around it. And that would be my exhortation and encouragement to us, to be people centered on the word of the Lord and a life response to that word so that we're building our life and finding our refuge, security, our hope, and our peace in him. That's where there is joy. That's where there is life. That's where there is is assurance of our salvation. Let's pray together. Now, Father, we thank you for your word, a word of warning, but a gracious word. We know it is by your grace that we stay awake, that we be a people ready, that we can rest with peace in our lives, Because we have found refuge in you, that rock upon which we build our lives, we pray, Lord, that you would continue to sanctify us in the truth of your word, that our lives would be a response to it, that it would dwell deeply and richly in our hearts, and as a result, that we would be filled to overflowing with joy and gladness. Uh, Lord, that we would be able to even say as the saints of old said, in which we read of in Revelation, come, Lord Jesus, that we desire to see you, to meet you. And yet, Lord, we thank you for your presence, ongoing and dwelling presence in our lives. Continue, O God, to bless us as your people. We pray that you would nourish us, Lord, with this, the Lord's Supper. And Lord, continue to guide us in the way everlasting. For this we pray through Christ our Lord. Amen.